I'm so glad you've joined us on the stream, and I can't wait to share from God's Word as we dive into the end of David's life. So speaking of diving in, I want to show you a quick video. It's from May of 2019, and it is uh, a, a man who, well, he gave it his all at the finish line. Take a look. Sheet Tatum of Mississippi State giving Bobby Grant everything he can handle. Infinite Tucker also of AM is there, but now Grant takes the lead over hurdle number nine. It's Grant and Tucker, one, two, AM. They both clear the tenth hurdle without a problem. It's going to be Tucker. Yes, he dives for the tape. He was second last year. He wasn't about to leave it on the track, and he wins it. It's one, two, AM, and even more than that. Infinite Tucker was third ranked in the NCAA entering this weekend. He ran 49.78, improves drastically upon, upon that, seeing that he ran 49.38. Look at this battle down the home stretch. Think about what their practices are like. If they're battling like this on race day, you can see that Tucker just finds that extra gear as he clears that final hurdle down this stretch. And then look at this finish, diving. He goes Superman style across the finish line to get the victory. I'm not sure I've ever seen a finish like that, Dwight. <laughs> well, what a great race for AM. They go 1-2. Tucker upgrades his runner-up finish to a win. Laying all right. it all out on the track. Enough that sports is the for definition the of leaving it all on the track in wow. a championship of As you might imagine, that clip went viral because he decided he was going to finish as well as possible, even to his body's detriment. When he was asked afterwards by the reporter, so tell me about your dismount from this race, he said, I saw my mama at the end of the race and I jumped out to hug her. I love that. What was it that motivated him to finish well? Well, he, did, he wanted to do better than third. He wanted, to do, he wanted to race first. But if you take his statement, he finished well because of the love for his mother. And when I think about finishing well, I think I want to finish this life well because of the love that I have for my father. And the truth is that most studies say that 60% of Christian leaders don't finish well. What does that mean? Well, it means that they are, to finish well, you are more in love with Jesus at the end than in the beginning. You are more passionate for his cause and you're more generous than you've ever been before. Walking with Jesus closely. I want to finish well. Even if I got to dive in, I want to finish well. This morning, as we continue this series, if you're, if you're new or you're just joining us from Michigan or online, wherever you are in the world, this is the 27th message of this series. And so if you enjoy what you're hearing this morning about David, guess what? We've got messages about Saul, messages about David. And well, today we're going to get a little bit into King Solomon, our third king. But today we're going to see the end of David's life, and he doesn't finish so well. He has everything going for him, and yet we've seen in the last couple of weeks, if you've joined us, that it's been a slippery slope, and he's been failing to engage, failing to engage as a leader, failing to engage as a parent. And the, and the circumstances and the consequences of his actions 
are horrible. This morning, as Solomon also becomes king and David actually dies, we're going to see Solomon make a really good decision to seek wisdom from God. It's the one thing that he really needed and he went after it. And of course, as we see David skidding to the finish, we'll be challenged to figure out what we can do today to begin to finish well. Regardless of whether you're 13 or 50 or much older. So let's dive into 1 Kings. We've actually made it through 2 Samuel. 1 Kings 1 verse 1, if you want to read along, it's also on the screen. Well, when David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his servants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king, may keep warm. And then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the girl was very beautiful. And she took care of the king and waited on him. But the king had no intimate relations with her. You might think, what is going on here? Well, David got old. Well, he's not really that old. He's actually probably only, only about 70, but he's lived his life really hard. And he's made some really poor choices. And though God has forgiven his sins, God oftentimes allows the consequences to remain. And that's really, I think, aged David very, very quickly. And his body's wearing out. I mean, he did spend a lot of years running around in the desert when he was on the run. But as with my grandparents and my great-grandparents that I saw, a lot of times you just can't get warm no matter what you do. Now, these days you have electric blankets. Back then they didn't have that. So they would do what we would do for hypothermia. If you get caught in the wilderness by yourself, you share the warmth of someone else. And so this is what's going on. They get a, 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 a girl servant who's very beautiful, which I think very strange that David has all these wives, Bathsheba, who is also very beautiful. Like, why can't they keep him warm? I don't understand that. These are things that I point out to just make you feel frustrated because we don't know the answer. But here is, here's David and he's procrastinating. Are you a procrastinator? We all push things off that we don't want to have to do. But David hasn't named his successor yet. Who's going to be the next king? Well, we've already had a few rivals try to take the, the throne. We saw Absalom last week. Well, that ended very poorly with Absalom caught by his hair in a, in a tree and killed by Joab, the political animal that he was. But I wonder if David maybe is worried about naming his successor because maybe there would be more bloodshed around it, that other people, that there would be more killing. That's what we've seen in the last few chapters. Or he's, maybe he's afraid that he's going to disappoint his other kids, that if I name this kid, then all these other kids are going to be mad at me or upset with each other. And so I don't want to rock the boat. I'm just not going to name a king yet. You know, there's a myth out there about tomorrow. You know, tomorrow, it's a noun. I saw this this week. It's tomorrow is a mystical land where 99% of all human productivity, motivation, and achievement are stored up. And David has decided tomorrow looks real nice. He's decided to procrastinate in naming the next king. 
And I am going to argue that actually, in doing so, he sets up another son, Adonijah, to lose his life in a quest for the throne needlessly. And as leaders, we are all faced with all sorts of decisions and pressure to decide which way to go, which way to lead, how to navigate all sorts of relational obstacles in this culture. And I think as a people, we are tempted to procrastinate a lot. I saw these quotes about procrastination this week. Procrastination is the lazy cousin of fear when we feel anxiety around an activity, we postpone it. Or often greater risk is involved in postponement than in making a wrong decision. I wonder what you've been putting off. What have you been procrastinating on because you're afraid you're going to lose relationships? What decision have you avoided because by choosing one way, it means that others will feel hurt or not so honored or chosen? As we looked at King Saul, we saw that delayed obedience is really disobedience. I found a couple quotes on this. God doesn't owe you an explanation or reason for everything he asks you to do. Understanding can wait. Obedience can't. Delayed obedience is really disobedience. Now, we're going to come back to this issue of procrastinating at the end. Don't you worry. I'll make sure I poke you in the eye with a sharp stick. But back to our passage here. David's made some promises about Solomon becoming the next king to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Nathan the prophet seems to indicate that Solomon's going to be the next king. But once again, David has failed to engage in this process. And the reason I say that David is being disobedient is I read a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles. The chronicler gives us some context into 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. The chronicler writes this in chapter 22. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me, you have shed, so God speaking to David, you've shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Translation, I really want to build you a temple. Your house shouldn't be in a tent. I mean, your Ark of the Covenant should not be in a tent. And God says, nope, you're not going to do it. You're a man of war. But, verse 9, but you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. I think when you get a word from the Lord like this, I think it's pretty clear that Solomon's supposed to be the next guy, right? So you can understand why Andrew's saying David was disobedient in not naming his successor by now. Now, Solomon is probably, if you work out the numbers, in his late teens. 
Um, think about a 16-year-old who gets their driver's license and how frightening that can be to watch your kid go out and drive and be in control of this huge vehicle, a killing machine. Yes, you're right. And yet, if you're not ready to drive, how much less ready are you to run a kingdom? So maybe David's holding off. Maybe David thinks I can hold on a little bit longer. I don't know what David's thinking. All I know is I believe that David's actions once again turn into really, really bad things. So since David hasn't said anything about who the next king will be, another challenger comes for his throne. Verse five, back to our passage. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith. Oh, that's a great name. Put himself forward and said, I will be king. Of course you will. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run in front of him. Verse six, his father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Okay, a few things going on here. Adonijah takes initiative, says, I'm going to be the king. And he would probably be the next in line because he's the next oldest. Absalom's now dead. So he would be the next guy. He's certainly handsome. So he's got that going for you, I guess, if that's important to be a king and handsome. But he doesn't ask his father, David, the king about it. He doesn't ask for a blessing. Adonijah does what Absalom did. If you were with us last week or if you remember from Sunday school, that Absalom gets a chariot with 50 men to run in front of him, and basically has, has an entourage to prove to everybody he's a big deal. He does the exact same thing. I'm thinking I'd change it up just a little bit because the last guy, he died. He feels very entitled to the throne. But noting what verse six here says, I think is so interesting. David never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Translation, David wasn't disciplining his children. Parenting does not stop when your kids turn 18 and move out of the house. It changes. I'd say it's harder. Some of you who are older than me say, oh, amen. But we're still called to speak the truth in love, to confront and step into conflict in a loving way. If you missed last week, pick up last week. It's all about this. This is kind of part two of the same concept. I think we do a massive disservice by not speaking the truth in love to our kids, to our employees, to the people that we manage, to the people that we have some relationship and authority over. If you're a parent, a manager, a supervisor of any kind, if you have some authority in some area over others, is there something that you've been avoiding talking to someone about? Is there something that you know is an issue, but you just kind of avoided it and you just, you, you've been putting it off maybe because you're afraid that if you confront this person, they're, they're not gonna like you anymore. They're gonna disown you. They're gonna abandon you. They're gonna quit. They're, they, they'll be hurt. They'll pull away. I don't wanna risk my relationship. Therefore, I'm not gonna say this thing. Is there an area where love looks like actually stepping in and confronting, but you've been chickening out? If so, I wonder who you can pull in 
to borrow some of their strength so you'll have the moral courage to actually do what you need to do. Sometimes it's because we're trying to do things on our own. We're isolated and we are created for community. We're created to walk together, to have an abundance of wise counsel. So David fails to engage a successor. Here's his son setting himself up to be the king. I created a comic for you here in verses 7 through 28, just to kind of sum this up. Adonijah sets himself up to be the next king of Israel. He begins putting his supporters together. He's building his cabinet, if you will. He's got Joab, the commander of the army. He's, by the way, the guy that ruthlessly kills Absalom while he's hanging in a tree. You've got Abiathar, the priest, but he's not the actual legitimate high priest. It's a whole longer story. So he rallies him up. Got to have a priest to anoint you king. And Adonijah throws a huge feast and makes sacrifices. This is maybe a couple hundred meters from where David is in the palace. But he makes sure that he doesn't invite certain people. He doesn't invite his brother Solomon or the queen mother um, Bathsheba. He doesn't invite Zadok, who's actually the legitimate high priest. He doesn't invite Benaiah, who is a military commander and like one of the most awesome, mighty men that David has. You can read about him. I think it's the end of 2 Samuel. I think it's maybe chapter 20, 23, 24. Benaiah is amazing. I think he's the one who kills a lion. And then Nathan the prophet, who has been Nathan central to David's story and pastoring David through all sorts of things. Nathan's not invited either. But all the rest of David's kids are invited. Are you smelling a rat? I am. So next comic. So Bathsheba and Nathan approach King David and say, you promised that Solomon would be the king. My master, you swore an oath by Yahweh. Solomon will be king after me and sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king without your knowledge? Now when my master, the king, you, King David, lays down with his master's ancestors, dies, my son Solomon and I will be considered traitors. We're as good as dead. My master, O king, this is what Nathan says, did you say... Adonijah will be the king after me and sit on my throne. For today, he and the king's sons, army commanders, and Abiathar, the priests, are having a feast. And they've declared, long live King Adonijah. Dun, dun, dun. David has run out of time to sit on the fence. He's got to make a decision. So whatever strength he has, he musters up. And this is what he says to Bathsheba in verse 29. The king then took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne and in my place. And they don't waste any time. They go make Solomon king that day. So while a few hundred meters away, Adonijah is having a feast, Solomon and the king's mule, that Solomon's riding on the king's mule. That's a big deal. And Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the army commander, and this whole entourage anoints Solomon, the next king. And all of a sudden, there's all this noise. It says it was like the ground shook. It's a little bit of a rivalry, I would say. 
Now, moving forward here, just show you where, this, where our narrative's going. First Kings 2, verses 10 through 12. Then David rested with his fathers, he died, and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father, and David, and his rule was firmly established. How is his rule firmly established? Well, in the end, Adonijah asks Solomon for David's keep-you-warm servant girl as a wife. I know, it's kind of funny, huh? Which is a sneaky way of saying, I am looking for a way to claim that I have right to the throne because it's like she's kind of like his, in his harem. And if I marry her, then I've got some side door to the throne. Well, Solomon goes, I know what you're doing and has Adonijah killed. Now, just in case you want to blame Solomon all for this, before David dies, he basically says, oh, by the way, these are all the guys you need to make sure that you kill including Joab. He's a snake. Go kill him. So they kill him. And so on and so forth. Indeed, the sword will not depart from David's house. This is what Nathan prophesied, and here it is. So David ends his life skidding to the finish instead of finishing well. I don't mean that he dove across to have the win. I think it's more like a motorcycle laid over on its side with sparks and fire and all kinds of pain and suffering as he barely makes it across the finish line. He doesn't finish well. He's a man after God's own heart. He's loved by God. God promises in 2 Samuel 7 that his house will always endure, ending in the son of David, Jesus, who ultimately sits on the throne. But David isn't perfect. And I love that because I'm not perfect. And I want to know there's room for me. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. So how could we finish well? There's five habits. Five habits that I believe help you finish well. I'm going to show this at the end. So don't panic to write it down. I'm going to give you plenty of time with this slide so you can get this. And by the way, this is not the first time we've talked about this. And this will not be the last time. This is important in our efforts to grow in our discipleship. So going through these really quick, repeated times of renewal. Ellie just modeled that for us. She went away to camp, had this renewal moment where it's shifted things in her relationship with God. That's a moment of renewal. Going after repeated times of renewal. Lifelong learning, number two. We're never done growing. We're always learning. Three, a big picture perspective. Understanding the moment in time you're in now in the perspective of how God has been shaping you for your entire life. We use a tool, a timeline tool for that. Oftentimes in the midst of a workshop that we call Focus Living to understand that big picture perspective. Four, understanding your dynamic sense of calling and contribution. Understanding what God's calling you to and asking you to put your hands to because we've got to say no to a lot of good things to say yes to the best things so that we can make our, our best contribution for God's kingdom on earth. And lastly, coaching and mentoring of others. That what you receive, you give away to others. 
You really want to learn something, go and teach it to someone else. So these are five habits that if you did these things on a regular basis, you would be on a trajectory to finish well. It's something intentional that you could put your hands to now, even if you are 13 or 50 and you feel like you've got a lot of life in front of you. Well, so David dies. He's buried. Solomon becomes the king. What's the first thing he does? He gets married. He has a wedding. Now, this is not the first time Solomon's going to get married. Like, he gets married 700 times. That's a lot of times, but that for a few weeks from now. So it's so interesting that this is the first thing that the writer of Kings gives us. First Kings, I got a comic for you. I just like the comics this week. I thought that were fun. And I love Legos. So, so Solomon, this is First Kings 3. I'm just going to read it to you the first few verses. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David, which is Jerusalem, until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrifices, sacrificing at the high places. That's good and bad, by the way, because a temple had not been yet built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father, David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Later, he's gonna be sacrificing to more than just one God. That becomes a real problem. But the king, Solomon, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. It's where the, it's where the, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle was previous to this. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Thousand. He's making extravagant gift to the Lord. This is extravagant worship. So what's going on here? Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter. And this is not forbidden, by the way. Uh, uh, Israelite man can marry a non-Jew, but the, the prescription is that they leave their false gods behind and follow Yahweh. Not sure exactly that this is what's happening here. This is probably a political alliance by marriage. So It's centering around the common enemy of the Philistines, uh, Philistia sitting right between um, Egypt to the south and Israel to the north. And so they're saying, well, let's combine forces. Why don't you take my daughter? And then I'll know that you're for me. And, And then it says that Solomon loves God. But the word is different than what Dave, what it says about David about loving God. Solomon has, is loyal to God. It's loyalty, it's language here in the Hebrew. And, and it's, um, it's like I'm loyal to my boss and I show up and I do what I need to do and I clock in at the right time and I clock out and I do my best job and I go home. Solomon is saying, yep, I'm the king under the king of kings and it's loyalty. Not the words that's used about David that it's all about zeal and passion for God and burning. Not exactly that. Nevertheless, Solomon chooses to go and worship God at the most revered place of worship in Gibeon. And while he was there, he had the dream. The dream. That's right. There's only one dream. This is the dream. And it it talks about it in, in verse five. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. 
okay? If you're like me, you go to sleep at night, you close your eyes because it's weird to sleep with your eyes open. And in the middle of your REM cycles, all of a sudden you experience things. If you've had the flying dream, you are so happy. If you've had the falling dream, you're less happy. You've had dreams where you're trying to work things out at work and you're like, man, I feel like I worked all night. You've had dreams that showed what you were afraid of and that were terrifying. And some of you have had even dreams where you're haunted by demons. And by the way, if that's you, we would love to pray for you because we want to put an end to that. But God also shows up in dreams. I would say that some of my most powerful experiences have actually been when I'm dreaming. Why? Because sometimes God just needs to get rid of my brain. Get your brain out of the way, Andrew. I want to talk to your heart. And when I'm sleeping, my brain doesn't, doesn't really fight back. And in this case, Solomon's actually connecting and talking to God. So I want to challenge you. Ask God for a dream. Ask God for his dream and pray for your dreams that, they would, that the God would shut down anything that's, that's of the enemy and that he would speak to you. You might be shocked at what God does because he wants to reveal himself to you. So this is a real experience. This is not just kind of a fake thing that Solomon uh, imagines. Why? Because we know the fruit of it is, is really good. God says to him in the dream, ask for whatever you want me to give you. So whatever you want. Solomon answers, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father, David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and you've given him a son, me, to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David, but I'm only like a little child and I don't know how to carry out my duties. This is an idiom. It basically means I don't have the training. I don't know how to do what I need to do. Not that he's literally like four. Your servant is here among your people that you've chosen a great people, too number, numerous to count or, or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Sol Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, you've not asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as, as, your, as David, your father did, I will give you a long life. It's a great deal for Solomon. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And he gave a feast for all his court. So Solomon rightly asks for wisdom and discernment so that he can be others focused. The focus is celebrated by God and just, he's just so richly blessed by God. It's just kind of silly. And this gift of wisdom still flows to us today. How? Through the wisdom books in our Bibles. The books that Solomon wrote, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, that are inspired by God. 
and a book called Job that he didn't write in the wisdom literature. And I want to show you a quick, short video on how these wisdom books help to add meaning to our lives today. Take a look. There are three books in the Bible that have come to be called the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And all of these books are addressing the same set of questions. What kind of world are we living in? And what does it look like to live well in this world? So how to be good at life. Yeah. So each of these books tackles these questions from a unique perspective. And it's important to understand all of them to get a fully biblical perspective on the good life. So as a thought experiment, you could actually imagine each of these books as a person. So Proverbs would be like this brilliant young teacher, and Ecclesiastes the sharp middle-aged critic, and Job would be this weathered old man who's seen a lot in his day. We're going to start by meeting the book of Proverbs, the brilliant young teacher. And she's not just smart, she's smart about everything, work, relationships, sex, spirituality. She has incredible insights things you wouldn't see on your own. Yeah, she would be the perfect friend to have around when you need really specific advice. So what makes her so smart? Well, Proverbs can see things that most people don't see. She believes that there's an invisible creative force in the universe that can guide people in how they should live. And you can't see it, just like you can't see gravity, but it affects everything that we do. So what's this force? Well, in Hebrew, it's called chokhmah, And it usually gets translated into English as wisdom. It's an attribute of God that God used to create the world. And chokmah has been woven into the fabric of things and how they work. So wherever people are making good or just or wise decisions, they're tapping into chokmah. And whenever someone's making a bad decision, they're working against chokmah. Right, or as it says in Proverbs chapter 1, the waywardness of fools will destroy them, but the one who listens to wisdom lives in security. So it's like a moral law of the universe. Yeah, it's a cause-effect pattern, and no one can escape it. And Proverbs personifies all of this as a woman. Yeah, Lady Wisdom. Right, and she roams around the earth calling out, making herself available to anyone who's willing to listen to her and to learn. Which leads to the second thing Proverbs believes, that anyone can access and interact with wisdom and use it to make a beautiful life for yourself or for others. You can create with it like a designer. Yes, in fact, chokmah in Hebrew isn't simply intellectual knowledge. The word is also used to describe a skilled artisan who excels at their craft, like woodworking or stonemasonry. So you show you possess chokmah when you put it to work and develop the skill of making a good life. Okay, that makes sense. So let's do this. Let's go find some wisdom. But before you do, Proverbs has one more really important thing to consider. Chokmah isn't some impersonal force. It's an attribute of God himself. And so in Hebrew thought, your journey to becoming wise has to begin with what Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord. It's this healthy respect for God's definition of good and evil. And true wisdom means learning those boundary lines and not crossing them. Now, all those ideas you just unpacked are in chapters 1 through 9 in Proverbs. But when I think of the book of Proverbs, I think of the collection of sayings, the Proverbs themselves. Tell me about those. Yeah, those are what you find in chapters 10 on to the end of the book. It's a collection of hundreds and hundreds of Proverbs about any and all aspects of life. And chokmah gets applied to them, resulting in this wise guidance to help you find a path towards success and no matter what you do. If I design my life with these sayings, life is going to be good. 
Yeah, or as Proverbs puts it, it'll give health to your bones, prosperity, a long, rich life. Which is a really big claim. But you can see how it's often the case. Wise people, they tend to do better. Things usually work out well for them in life. And so that is the promise and the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is really beautiful. But if we take a step back, some people would argue it's a little too simplistic. Because sometimes horrible things happen to really wise people, and sometimes foolish people get rewarded. It doesn't always work the way we think it should work. That's right. Which is why we need to go and listen to our next wise friend, Ecclesiastes the Critic. Because he's wrestled with that very problem, and he's going to push us further in our journey to find the good life. So for the next month or so, we're going to be focusing on the Proverbs. And in the meantime, I wonder if you would go on a journey with me and read one proverb a day. And it works out really well because there's 31 Proverbs and in some months there's 31 days. So whatever the day is, you just read that number. So today is the 11th, 11th of July. So I read Proverbs 11. And a couple verses popped right out. And so I decided to highlight them for a moment to you. Proverbs eleven twenty five: a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And when you give, don't you know this is true? That when you're generous, there's just this wave of, of refreshment that comes to you. And you don't give so that you can get, but it's a true statement. Now, the interesting thing about Proverbs are they're not promises. They're the collective wisdom that has been inspired by God and left for us. But just as the video said, sometimes bad things happen to good people. Even when you do all of the Proverbs, let's say correctly, because we live in a sin-scarred world, we still have consequences that don't follow, that are different. That's why we need our friend from Ecclesiastes will pick that up in a, in a month or so. But some other verses from Proverbs 11. Where there is no wise guidance, the nation falls, but in the, mul- in the multitude of counselors, there is victory. You sense this is true, right? Ask a few people to help you and you get a much better result. Proverbs 11 too, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. With humility comes wisdom. Oh, wait. So you're saying if I go after humility, I'll gain wisdom. There's another reason in this season. And I think this is the biggest thing that we need to do in our culture in this season is to go after humility. I think it is the answer to so many social issues in our, in our country, in our day. Anyway, sorry, I preached about something else. A gossip betrays a confidence, verse 13 says, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. It's a great reminder that I need to make sure that I don't tell someone else's news, even if it's good news to someone else at a turn. So as we close, a few things that we talked about today. First of all, have you delayed doing something where you feel like the nudge of the Lord is already there? And your delayed obedience is actually disobedience. And we'll call it procrastination. But perhaps you need to bring someone alongside you to help you 
have the strength and the moral courage to follow through. Or maybe even more specifically, we talked also about as a leader, as a parent, as a boss, as someone who has some kind of authority and influence, is there something that you haven't had the guts to confront? And the Lord's nudging you this morning. No, that's not your wife's elbow. It's actually the Lord. And lastly, just going to put up these five habits real quick as we close. Five habits of those finishing well for you on the screen. Repeated times of renewal means sometimes it's retreat, it's rest, it's reconnecting with God. It can happen in nature or it can happen in study. It can happen in, on vacation. It's time where you get reset and you rediscover the beauty of God again. Renewal. The second one, have you become stagnant? What's it going to take for you to jumpstart your relationship with God? Does that mean buying a new book? Does that mean reading a different, a, the Bible in a different translation? Does that mean a new worship song? What does it look like to grow and learn and jumpstart your relationship with God? Three, a big picture perspective. Have you taken the time to look at the big picture? Four, this dynamic sense of calling. Oftentimes you only find that when you have someone else coaching you and drawing out what God is doing already. Coaching is as simple as asking good questions and listening. Allowing someone to process. And lastly, coaching and mentoring of others. This is oftentimes what we talk about as fathering and mothering, nurturing, pouring into someone else. And you don't have to be a parent. You don't have to have gray hair, although I've got both those things going for me. You can be younger and still have a posture of coming alongside others. So when my 13-year-old Mimi goes and helps with Sunday school with the littler, littler kids, she's walking out this coaching and mentoring kind of relationship, and we grow. And we put ourselves on a trajectory to finish well, regardless of being 13, 50, or 80. So if you'd stand, I just want to pray for you. Thanks so much for joining us today in the house and on the stream. I surely believe that the Lord really wants to work in and in us and through us. Um, and as we're transitioning for the first time, um, today we're going to invite our prayer teams forward uh, to pray for, pray for you. If you uh, are in the house and you'd like prayer, uh, we want to pray for you. So if you, the prayer team folks can just kind of start making their way forward, that would be helpful. Um, but I want to pray for you in the midst of this, that the Lord will speak to you and show you how you move forward in light of these things that we looked at from God's word. Lord, we're so thankful for your goodness over us. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts where we've been delaying, where we've been procrastinating, we've been disobeying, where we've been chicken to speak the truth in love and give us what we need, God, whether it's just the power from your Holy Spirit or the strength and moral courage of a friend who could come alongside. Help us, God, to be people who are intentionally finishing well today. So as we move forward, Lord, make us humble that we might be wise, that we might understand what your will is, 
and join you in the work where you're already working. I pray a blessing on this family, whether they're in the house or far and wide on the stream. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for coming here in the house and thanks so much for joining us on the stream. If you're in the house, you can grab, make sure you grab your trash, come forward for prayer, and we'll see you next week.